Hi, this is Alan K. Rohde, author and film historian, and you are listening to Tim Millard's podcast, The Extras. Hi, I'm Matt Patterson. And I'm D.W. Ferranti. And we're here. What, what show are we on, Dan? Um, this is The Extras. Isn't this the show that kind of replaced ours? In the hearts and minds of most people, yes. We were on like about 400 episodes of the Warner Archive podcast with George Feldenstein, but now Tim gets to do it, and he's doing a fantastic job. One might even say even better. And we're joining with him without George, so Tim can find out what really happened over those 12 years. So join me and Dan on Extras. Where we go the extra mile. It's extra. All right, well, let's let's start that again, because uh, just to uh, let the fans know, we lost signal. <laughs> so we're going to start this. Uh, and, uh, you know, hey, if there's some repeat... So be it. You can always hit the fast forward on the podcast. Don't you dare. Uh, no. So I think we were talking about, what, some of the format? Yeah. What was it? Yeah, well, there are a lot of format fans now, right? And this is something that Dan and I started to encounter where there were people who wanted physical media in the, you know, in the age of streaming because they felt they could own it, right? And so Warner Archive was there to get uh, more new release, less films, but more TV shows that just weren't going to wind up at like a a Best Buy or Target. And now, you know, since Dan and I, I mean, there was a little bit of it there, but now people have really moved more into 4K. Dan, have you moved to 4K? Uh. Well, it's interesting you bring up the 4K thing and formats and streaming because, as we know, this is sort of working from the current era backwards. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of recent concern about how do you access films moving ahead because various services are... There was an idea that people had that eventually you would just... And if I, I don't... I don't know if Tim remembers back in 2014, the so-called Streamageddon. Uh, oh, which, Tim wouldn't. And that, I think that uh, was 2013, to be honest. Yeah. But um, so it's funny because it all came true later. But right when we were launching Warner Archive Instant, the then streaming side for Warner Archive. Warner Netflix, Brothers' first subscription video on demand service. Netflix on its own had decided to allow the window to expire on an enormous quantity of catalog titles they had licensed, not just from Warner Brothers, but from the other studios too, because Netflix was moving into more original production and they wanted to become what they are now. So instead of being the online version of Netflix by mail, they were becoming Netflix the studio. So while we were launching Warner Archive Instant, Netflix was dropping a lot of old catalog titles and people on the internet assumed that we were pulling the titles in order to artificially inflate Warner Archive Instant. And it became, you could do searches for it, it became known online as Streamageddon. And it was like, (laughs) look at what they're doing to us to try to force us you know, they got to understand people just want one streaming service. And then, of course, you know, by 2023, we have more streaming services than you could count and even more growing fast channels. And 
catalog is still getting lost. And yet, on the other hand, it's worthy to note that shows that were designed to be fan-friendly for streaming are now coming out on disc. And at the same time, uh, a blockbuster film was recently released on 4K, and Sony's had to tell everyone, don't worry, we have more coming, because... It's Demand. Oppenheimer has, has actually sold out at a number of retailers. I mean, there's more coming. But the point being, there was always this weird idea that the pie was changing and you couldn't have these different slices. And it's like, no, the pie just grows. All of this stuff is additive. None of it is, you know, you, you, it's not cannibalizing sales. You're growing different ways for people to experience stuff. You just have to make it all work together. That's such a great point. And you just reminded me, I remember. Not the day, but I remember sitting in marketing meetings and it dawned on us one day that, wait a second, putting the TV shows from the CW on Netflix, which we thought was going to be the death of our home entertainment income for those shows, it brought a whole new audience to those shows. So the shows prospered because then the broadcast numbers the next year or the next season went up. But not only that, people then wanted to buy and own the show and go back. And it's like, well, but they could just watch it on streaming. Yes, but a percentage of them are physical media collectors and they want to own the shows. So it was that kind of the, the, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. And that's why I was always scratching my head a few over the last few years when people were cutting home entertainment departments. I'm like, well, you're just getting rid of the people who know how to keep making some money coming in. Right. And we all know that we all know that the big thing for Wall Street is cash flow. Can you show cash flow? Home yeah. entertainment was cash flow. TV that's, was cash that's flow. The money films, machine. Yeah. Films were a tougher cash flow because they go up and down. But yeah. you could be like every quarter home entertainment is selling and you're cutting your cash flow. Yeah. And, and, and so it is a great point you bring up. Yeah, and in terms of it being a catalog business, you know, home entertainment allows you to refresh the catalog, and I mean that in a technical way, to make new masters that you're then paying for with the physical release. But those new masters then become an instrument you can use to spread it through commercial, linear, fast, streaming, whatever. But you have a new high-definition master. You're future-proofing the catalog. And the catalog is, you know, when you have a 100 years of good stories, let them live. I mean, there's a thing I remember... Back in the 90s, you would hear back when if you went to Comic-Con, for instance, you would be probably 80% male and you would talk to comic book publishers and the marketing people would say things like, well, you know, girls don't like comics. And I would just sit there and go, it's a medium. It's not, you know, it's like, no, girls don't like your comics. And then, of course, you know, manga totally changed the dynamic there and now it is solidly 50 50 because yes you know what everyone likes to read it's like i had a friend in high school who used to say i don't care for poetry as a genre and i would just laugh (laughs) at him because it doesn't make any sense it's like you know it's just stories you know um people say things like uh well you know young people don't like the pacing of old Hollywood films. And it's like, no, they're not used to it. Or, you know, young people don't watch black and white movies. Yeah, because they've never seen them. 
And it's just like all of this stuff is just let it be there. Let people discover it on their own. Make it easy to discover. I was just on the radio today. They were interviewing the guy who wrote the TCM book on Christmas movies. And they talked about how, you know, speaking of we're we're living in an age where people are hiding movies as tax write-offs, which means nobody can ever see them. Ignoring the fact that we have a history of movies like It's a Wonderful Life and Christmas Story that made all their money way down the line from theatrical release because they were just available on TV for people to find and enjoy because they're good stories. End of sermon. (laughs) Well, but in a side commentary, there is, as Dan was saying, a difference between format and content. And working in a traditional media silo, it trains you, right? Like, if you're in charge of this format, then you're thinking of it format first, right? And not content first. And that, unfortunately, is a, in a business, it, it kind of puts blinders on you without understanding that all of it is kind of cross-pollinated. And that, um, yes, people, people want more stuff and the best quality for as cheap as possible, right? Like that, that's uh, pretty a simple. Fair, a fair description of a consumer, yeah. Yes. Thank you. This is my business book. <laughs> and, uh, but the studio's job is now, especially that every single person is walking around with a device that can shoot, edit, and publish anything to a worldwide audience in minutes or in real time, right? Like they can real time stream it. The studio's job is to uh, figure out how to take their investment and uh, feed it to the right person at the maximum cost at the right time, right? And so that's windowing. And that's something that uh, the business was very good at for a long time. But then just as uh, we were starting, everybody's head exploded and um, they all decided that the best way to make the most money as possible is uh, to be like uh, the you know internet businesses and to grow your audience without growing revenue. And that's a, that's a different business. HBO was the most profitable television station because they understood windowing, right? And you, know, you you bring content in, you bring it out, you spend this much money, you know, and they were spending money on new content for just Sunday night. And people then decided it was worth, you know, 10, 15, $20, whatever they were spending a month, because they were feeling like, oh, this is HBO. But the reality when HBO would look at what people were actually watching, they were watching things like Weekend Booby Summer 3, right? But they'd say that they bought it because they wanted, you know, uh, The Sopranos, right? And that that difference was where they made all of their money. But when the internet people business came in and demanded that you have Sopranos every night, and the people who were running HBO said, that is suicide and quit. Well, historically, they've been proven right because uh, you have to think about these revenue models. And when you have less revenue, then eventually you're going to have 
less higher quality content, right? And so it becomes a loss for the uh, audience as well, right? Uh, and, you know, so it's, it's, it's a business. It, unfortunately, it's a business first and it's art second. Well, I want to throw a couple of questions at you guys that I get a lot, that you probably used to get a lot, and maybe you still get a lot. But people who buy and are definite fans of the Warner Archive product. So, I mean, these are hardcore people. They're, they're shelling out money. But they want to know, why this movie now? And why not the movie I want or the top movies? You know, and it's like, if... If Warner Brothers has 50 movies better than this one, why are you guys releasing it this month? What do you what do you have to say to people who have that? Because you, you, I'm sure you hear it every month. You know, there's a story behind each one. And yeah, we would get hit with that all the time. And you would try to explain to them like, look, our putting out Brothers Grimm actually has nothing to do with Rain Tree County. Like right. Rain Tree County is its own story. And there's issues with the element and the film that will or will not come together over time based on technology and available things. This film is ready to go, has decent elements, and we're able to release it. And then some other times it's like, oh, well, um, there was a list of films and they wanted to fulfill a thing and this was at the top of the list. I mean, there's, there's really, really mundane answers and there's really, really technical answers. And it's all of the above always. But, but the, the, the simple answer is these films are coming out because they can come out. Dan and I created a, a bunch of uh, customer models. And there is a customer, and we sort of mentioned it with the burn pit mines was, was one answer, that I think they seem to think that there was like a room and that you go and you pull a thing off a shelf and then you put it in a machine and hit a button and it's done, right? Like, like, like that it's very simple and easy and uh, that the only reason why it's not all being done at once is due to greed. A more sophisticated customer will understand that difference. And um, very early on, too, we said that like a physical media customer, like a hardcore customer, was more like the person who would show up to a record store, right? Like a, like a vinyl collector. And people who want vinyl want to hold a thing. They understand its value. Its value is not just for the music inside, but and not just for the weight of the vinyl, although that helps, or the quality of the giant package you get it in. Uh, but it, you know, it represents something almost in, intangible to them that an MP3 uh, cannot hold. And that customer is now uh, your primary physical media customer. It's a. It, it's more like uh, it's gotten kind of a little back to laser disc, right? Like a like a. Speaking a, a, of George, yeah. Speaking of George, who, by the way, we're at the um, for co for commentary. It is the fortieth anniversary of the first commentary uh, this year coming up with uh, King Kong. In uh, 1984, the, the very first one. Piece of That's trivia. the very first commentary, and it was on a laser disc? Yeah, yeah, for Criterion. And it was because they discovered that they could have on that format an additional audio track. And, you know, could it was originally designed for multiple language support. And they were like, well, what if we get some 
dude like who's really knowledgeable about film history to just talk. And the concept took off. Right. Well, I, I mean, it's not rocket science to think, hey, people like this film and they've liked it for 40 years. Let's have somebody talk about it who can tell us something about it. But the like ability a, to technically put it together that yeah. you know, while you're watching the movie, that was pretty cool. You know, yeah, <laughs> to be like, yeah. OK, I can go to a lecture about this or I can listen to That's it on right. the radio or whatever. But to, while I'm watching the film for the upteen time, so I don't need to hear the dialogue. They can talk about this scene, what's going on here and the history behind it. And that, to me, that the first time you saw a commentary, you're like, that's kind of magical. You know, it, it's now we're all used to it. But. Amazing. Yeah. And, and the thing is that, and, and uh, living in a big city, we, you know, in LA, you've always had access to special screenings where like the filmmakers would show up and maybe talk before or after the film and what it was like to put it together. Right. That's a live commentary. But right. if you live, you know, outside of New York or L.A. or maybe even Chicago, you don't you never got access to that. Right. Or you only got what was at the blockbuster. People now with discs and with all these streaming services, you know, as long as you well, as long as you have an Internet connection, you can get it streaming. And if you don't have an Internet connection, because that's another large audience, uh, you can get access to all these you know, all this material that you you could not have gotten in any way in the past if you live, you know, in the middle of the country. Yeah. And it, it's speaking of not having Internet access, it's also worthy to note that, um, you know, to serve a broad an audience of film fans as possible involves uh, multiple avenues. Because I remember with Warner Archive, we would have the the Blu-ray fans who wanted everything as good a master as possible on the best format possible. And God love them, yes, especially for certain movies like Peter Weir's Fearless or something like that. You want to, you know, treat the movie the way it deserves. But then there was an older audience of monogram Western fans. They didn't need a Blu-ray. Not only that, some of them didn't want the Blu-rays. They were like, no, just DVD. I have a DVD player. I don't want Blu-ray. I just want the DVD. And quite honestly, you know, there's room to serve both audiences and serve them well. And they're both physical media fans. The danger is when you confuse A for B. Right. Like a, somebody who shows up to the film forum with somebody who wants to relive their uh, Saturday morning matinee. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like the format and the technology should be robust enough to serve both audiences well instead of serving both of them not so well. And you know, I, want take, I want to take you back a little bit to the to the question that uh, uh, that I that I threw out there. And, and I think that one of the thoughts is that somehow there's a uh, a, a big room and it's, it's the library. And yeah. it's like, which one should we release this month? And you're like, oh, I'm going to walk up here. I'm going to grab it. And this is the one we're going to release on Tuesday. And there's some mastermind. And you you talked about how that's obviously, you know, films are in different places. They're in different states of needing repair or restoration and and all of these things. And there's also the business side, which is uh, our home entertainment group used to be broken into catalog, new release, television, animation. And they would be like, we want to have every 
week or every month, we want to serve X amount of the audience with releases. So in order to do that, we're not going to do all the top catalog movies in black and white from the 30s and 40s. We need some stuff from the 60s. We need some stuff from the 90s. We need some TV. And so all of this is going on and there's only so many resources, so much time from marketers, from the distributors to to all the people who work there. And so you're only going to get one, maybe if your interest is in a specific area, one a month that really appeals to you. But that's because the company is also trying to appeal to all of these other parts of the audience out there, which I think you explained, but I just wanted to kind of rehash that oh, a little bit. No, no, that was good. It's and the other thing important. is, is you know, and to be clear, there is a another side to it, which is, for example, oh, what are we going to put out in October? What horror movies do we have in the pipeline that we can get done in time that there's an audience for? You know, let's have an 80s and let's have a 30s and you know, but even that selection, like, you know, they're going to sell because it's Halloween. And to this day, discs for Halloween movies pump up in October. So you want to get those in the pipeline, but you also have to balance the cost of mastering versus the audience versus what's readily available. What's a bigger thing. Maybe we'll put this out as a test. And then down the line, we can actually do the full thing. I mean, all of that calculation is constantly going on, and it is really more of an art than a science, but there is a science there, too. And that was uh, George looked at it as programming, right? It's no different than a TV channel or, you know, like radio shows, right? Because it's like um, there's only so much information that and money, right, and time that a consumer has. And so the Warner Archive program, which is still going on, you know, is now stretched into its second decade, right? Like, how do you sustain that audience over time? And so, as as you guys were saying, there's a variety of consumers, a variety of tastes, a variety of genres, and you want to uh, capture people's attention, right? Because it's now an attention economy every you know, week or every month and get people to engage with the product. And if you dumped a thousand movies at once, right, let's just say that a thousand movies were were dumped at one time, which would be kind of amazing in one sense, but how mo- one might I even call that the it? streaming model. Well, but yeah, with streaming too, that, that they have this problem. It's like, how do you navigate it? And the streamers try to do that through algorithm. And, you know, if you're on the Roku, they say this is what's at the top. And there's even, but, you know, that I mean, there is still not an algorithm that is equal to the guy at the video store that is able to go. Oh, if you like that, you're going to like this. The algorithm is just showing you variations on things you've seen. It's not showing you something you've never thought of seeing. You really still. I mean, maybe AI will get there. It's not there yet. Right. No. Well, I, I, put, I put, Speaking of algorithm, but, and then we'll get back to that. So I was just posted on Facebook how the Maltese Falcon, which was on sale, showed in the algorithm, hey, if you, if, you, know, if you like Maltese Falcon, you're going to like Scream 6. And, uh, <laughs> it's, I posted on there. I'm like, well, this is kind of a head scratcher. And uh, I think what the algorithm was saying is, is this is on sale and this is on sale. Yeah. Well, that is not the way that the consumer is thinking, 
right? So yeah. sure, yeah, the algorithm is correct. A lot of people bought this because it's on sale and they bought Scream as uh, as well because it's on sale, but that's not right though. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, once the sale was over, it, it went back to promoting the right movie with uh, Maltese Falcon. But that's just kind of an interesting, funny side note. We can laugh about it, but that's where humans are better. Yeah. Oh, so um, not to brag, but uh, a micro budget film that I produced and co-wrote was just released on Amazon. It's it's uh, it's in the pay window. It's called Lunamancer, if you want to see it. But being part of Amazon, when you watch the film, and it's not a big budget film, there isn't a lot of information out there for the algorithm to digest. But it's very funny to see what they recommend, right, for the, for that movie after you've seen it, what's similar. And uh, the algorithm is so confused that it's just like, uh, these actors were in these other things, so you may like, right? But it doesn't right. say that. But uh, one of the actors was in a movie, uh, a notorious uh, film from uh, 1980 called Cannibal Holocaust. So, but this movie has nothing to do with that, right? But their top recommendation is Cannibal Holocaust, if you like this film. And then the next two movies are also cannibal movies. And so Lunamancer is, has no cannibalism. Nobody is yeah, actually but, eating anything. But ironically, I'm wearing a shirt for the Beyond from Grindhouse Releasing, who also put out Cannibal Holocaust on Blu-ray. So, you know, if you're a fan, uh, <laughs> I recommend both of them. In fact, I recommend every single title from Grindhouse Releasing. They're fantastic. <laughs> that's not paid you know that's just you just, did just that yeah yeah not paid that's fan talk <laughs> dan and i have a lot of fan talk which we can now do that we are uh free of our very very rigid uh corporate uh nsas is that right dan ndas oh and see i don't even know anymore what is <laughs> I that a non, a I mean, non sneeze yeah, the NSA would not be involved. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, shoot. Did I leak uh, something? Yeah. <laughs> well, to go back to uh, what we were talking about, the you know, how you want to have something for the different various audiences. I remember one of the, uh, this time of year was very exciting uh, at work because um, I knew that either in December or January, I think I would meet with marketing and they would lay out their plan for the year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Releases. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I'm so excited for this meeting because they would tell me where the, or tell us uh, in the special features group, these are the films that we're going to put X amount of dollars to. And these are the films that have a slightly lesser budget, but still good. And then these, we have no budget for extras, but we're still releasing these. We would, you know, usually you'd have lunch and they would talk about, and we would just sit there and we'd be so excited. I bring that up. Just to let the listeners and, and people know, some of this planning is a year or more out because you, you know, especially in television, you had so many episodes that had to be cleaned up of a show from the 70s or even 80s or Fresh Prince or, you know, whatever it was that the plans had to be made, but they couldn't be made for this year unless they had been working on these TV titles for like two years before to get the episodes and find out what shape they're in. And the other thing that people don't think about for TV 
is all of the various languages around the world would oh. have to be tracked down. Oh, yeah, you um, guys that was had not to do always that. easy. Yeah. 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 So, in other words, it was a long lead time for this stuff. It wasn't just like, you know, snap your, your fingers and it's going to happen because that information then had to be shared with retailers, right? And they would come back and say, ooh, we think that's a great title. We'll pre-buy X number. You know, again, this is for home entertainment where they're, yeah. they're, they're already taking pre-orders and things a year out. So, yeah, uh, manufacture goods. Yeah, exactly. So they would, you know, one retailer saying, we're going to take these many tens of thousands and another. And, and then they would be like, that would be how they would base their budget for extras. Like right. this, thing, this is going to be a big title. I mean, so in, uh, we're going to give home, you money for extras. Home entertainment was kind of like being a Tesla dealer. And Warner Archive was kind of like being Uber Eats. <laughs> we we used to it means um, nothing. Just making the joke. No, but w- when we worked for uh, the digital division, um, we were one of the more successful uh, products that they launched because their job was sort of to kamikaze, like try business ideas on digital and see what stuck. And and this business uh, was. Uh, it stuck, right? They were very excited about it. No, and the, and the great breakthrough and insight that Mike, our old boss, had was expanding Warner Archive out of WB Shop and making it available yeah. at all online retailers that wanted to sell it. And suddenly, you know, the line grew by leaps and bounds. Just because it was niche doesn't mean it had to be in a corner. I but- I can do a better job with that analogy, but. <laughs> yeah, but then uh, at like the end of 2015, Dan and I got rolled into home entertainment. And so we moved to a home entertainment floor and, you know, all this stuff that, Tim, where we would just kind of hear about what you guys were doing. All of a sudden, those meetings started to happen around us. And we were like, oh, these guys like... Like, because even though it had shrunk down by 2015, the uh, system that you guys had was the, you know, like the seven billion dollar uh, business mean, system. Right. I mean, just like like going to uh, the approvals meetings for like the packaging, I was just like, just nothing but sympathy for. You oh know, my god! It's so complicated. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean. mean with the- we're, we're, we're really like pulling back the curtain, you know, the yeah. Wizard of Oz here and, and getting, uh, you know, get people a good exposure of how the business ran back then. But, you know, it doesn't run that way anymore. So no. we're not really sharing anything that, yeah. that is a secret or anything because everything has changed and it's never going to run like that again. No. But the, yeah. the, like, to the packaging, there would literally be a, a, for television shows where there's 12 or 24 episodes, the packaging would be like a... Four inches, yeah. <laughs> because every every page would be there, and uh, I have to look at the cover, front cover, side cover, back cover, each disc. So if there's 24 discs or or whatever it is, depending on how many discs there are, I should say never 24. Let me back that off. There'd be like three episodes, four episodes, maybe if it's an hour to a disc. Yeah, it depends so, on the size, you know. And then we would do this for DVD, for Blu-ray, and it would all be in this in this uh, packaging. You have to Man. look at it. And uh, and review and put your notes on there and everything. And it would make multiple rounds. And you had X oh, number yeah. of days where you had to move it to the next 
it was quite a thing and, and whole teams of people, proofreaders and, and artists and other people working on that. So, uh, those, yeah, those stacks would pile up outside George's office. Yes. Uh, and Dan and I would be like, Oh my God. I mean, and it really was, it took up like, Dan, didn't it take up like two chairs at one point? Like there was like an well, in and an out. Well, and I, and I want to be careful in, in uh, how I'm saying this. Cause I'm really, it had more to do with, uh, the dinosaur like quality of old business systems for a long time, stuff was still being done on hard copy. Like oh, yeah. the packaging would get printed out and the proofreader would make notes. And then I, as the copywriter would read the notes and I would make, you know, there was a lot of stuff going back and forth on paper and th- this system existed for years. But I, when I first came in, I was like, you know, why can't we just do this digitally? And then the proofreader corrects my copy. And then, and yeah, everyone, no one wants to be the person that is bucking the the way things are done. And literally like the year, two years bef- before the pandemic and all of that, you know, I finally, you know, things had broken down to the point where like, I actually got to know the proofreader was assigned to us quite well. We were talking and then she was like, you know, it'd be really nice if I could just get your copy and correct it. And then we could send my corrected copy out. And I was like, yeah, I agree. And then it was like, oh, let's do that. <laughs> and then so, pandemic. Yeah. 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 But it was this pandemic. thing where like, you know, everyone on all sides of this slowly grinding millstone is going, wait, wouldn't it be smoother if we did this? But no one can see each other. No one can hear each other. No one can talk. Everyone's just stuck in their corner, pushing sure. it around. Sure. And then finally the wheel got small enough to see the person on the other side and go, hey, let's move it over here. George was our guide to understanding your guys's uh, bureaucracy level because uh, nobody, there was no map, you know, like, like we didn't know who was because we'd moved from one division to the other. But Dan and I kind of needed that because it was uh, it, it was just kind of hard to know, but we, you know, we figured it out, and it it all uh, it all continued to work, which was uh, it was it was very interesting experience. No, I, and the exciting thing for me now being back in the position of being a fan is, thankfully, George is there, and it's still working. And like you know, this month uh, I'm very excited. There's a new loony not not to promote, but I've promoted Grindhouse. I can promote Warner Archive. You know, I'm very excited about what, what do you think we do on this too? podcast, Daniel? What do you think we do on this podcast, Daniel? We promote one of our archive titles, please. And I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about Tarzan the Ape Man. Yes. You know? I mean, it's like at least once a week, I mean, once a month, George just gets a text from me going, Oh, I'm so excited. Blah, 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 blah is coming up. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still fans. In fact, the reason why Dan got hired in the first place was people would start coming to me and asking me all these weird questions, not just about Warner Archive product, but about regular Warner Brothers product, because a lot of people didn't know how to find the legacy packaging, right? Like, like the, maybe they could find the VHS, but they couldn't, they didn't know at the WB shop, they wouldn't know if there was like a booklet that had come in, uh, in the packaging. And so they would come to me and I'd go, hold on. And I'd call Dan. And Dan was home at the time with a newborn uh, child. And I'd be like, Dan, can you open up your Babylon 5 season two? Is there a booklet? And Dan would be like, hold on. 
And he'd be like, <laughs> yes. And I'd go, thanks. And then I'd hang up the phone and I'd be like, yes, there is a booklet. And they'd be like, oh, thanks, Matt. And so they thought that I was like, Dan. But then uh, the time came where they needed a copywriter. And I'm like, here's the guy who you guys thought I was. But he, I was just calling him. Now you can have him sit here and ask him directly. So now now the word, the truth is out. You were writing Dan's coattails for years. <laughs> totally. and, uh, <laughs> Dan made me who I am today. <laughs> Still you are. Yes. Uh, well, that's so, you know, it's, it's some great stories uh, in talking about how the business was. Hopefully people are still listening and they find it interesting. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But the, the, the core of it all has been George. Oh, and he yeah. continues to be. And I think you yeah. just mentioned that, Daniel, that it's like, thank God that George is still there. Because yeah. to your point, to your point there, Matt. You were calling Dan, but guess who everybody else calls? Oh, yeah. George. Oh, yeah. You pick oh, up yeah. the phone and they're like, do you know where XYZ or do you know anything about? And there's one person you can pick up the phone and you can call. It's George. Wow. And if he doesn't know it, click, click, click. You hear his typewriter. You know, you hear the keyboard going. Yeah. And <laughs> he, if he doesn't know off the top hand, of his head. One-handed type is George. George. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> George Joyce, phone in one hand. Other hand on the keyboard. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Multitasking. Yep. And then, yep. uh, and so uh, it's like, we're so fortunate. And when people say, hey, why don't we get this? Why don't we get more of that? Why don't we have this? Why is this? Why is there no extras? Da, da, da. I say, you know, look, it's a battle. It's a yeah. battle yep. to get any title out these days. It's yep. really a challenge because of all the obstacles and the fact that the staff has just been depleted. For so much of this, um, and there's only so much time in a day, in a week, and so much resources. So I think I, I mean, people might think I'm, you know, wow, Tim's very optimistic. But I'm like, six titles, eight titles? Are you kidding me? Uh, in a month? Uh, it was only a year ago we were having one title in a month. Yep. yep. Yeah, um, going so to, be, to be back to that kind of uh, larger cycle is is a great thing. Yeah, um, no, and and, and and you know, not to make it all about George, but George's patience in dealing because he's been through the up and downs of the studios and the systems and the formats, and he knows how to play the long game really well. The end game is always just to get the stuff out there. Yeah, and, representing yeah. George has always represented the voice of the fans, right? And right. How do you represent that voice among the businessmen? And that's a, that's a, it's really tricky. And uh, George has been doing it a long time. Dan and I would love when George would tell stories about like, like, cause he got into the business first with 16 millimeter when he was in college. Oh, right? And this is a funny true story is when I was a kid before home entertainment really was a thing. My brothers and I would save our allowances and the money we made working at my dad's camera store and all of that. And we would rent 16 millimeter films from Films Incorporated and we would show them in our living room and we'd invite people over and everyone would put like 50 cents or a dollar in the coffee can and we would project like Rebel Without a Cause or Wizard of Oz, whatever. And we would rent these films. And these were like the 16 millimeter versions that we'd go to like colleges and high schools. And 
we would just rent them and show them at home because we had a 60 millimeter projector. And that was sort of the beginning of one of the beginnings of sort of my film fandom. And then lo and behold, years later, I'm having a conversation with George and George is like, oh, yeah. I had the Northeast. I did that catalog you guys were ordering from. Right. You, would, you, you, in point of fact, were ordering those movies from me. Yeah. Right. It's full circle. It's, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It, it, which is, and then he got into the early days of home video and he talks about working for uh, Golan and Globos early oh. on. And when and he does this fantastic story that, he, you know, when I first met him, he talked about working for those guys and how they'd be like, George, you have to sell lemon popsicle for lemon popsicle would <laughs> be. A hit. And George is like, what? But they would sell thousands of copies of lemon popsicle for ninety nine ninety nine. Like there were because people wanted these movies, even if they were. Israeli porkies, right? Like it, it's just, it's, it's insane. And the reason why I found out that story is when I first started just the year before Netflix had just launched with their streaming service, which came free. I bought a Roku and I watched everything on it, but the film libraries then were insane. And they had lemon popsicle one, three, four, set and seven on Roku. And I just, I just brought it up. And then he starts telling the story and he goes, well, they don't have a uh, two and five because two and five are with this library and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just staring at him like, Oh my God, he's the human pro IMDB thing. Like <laughs> right. the same. Yeah. walking database. Yeah. And so I just was like, absorb, absorb. So it, it's just, but that, um, that scope of the business, right, is invaluable because uh, while it's, it's changed, it always stems from that people want to see these films and they want to see them the best way they can. That's it. They want to not only see them, they want to own them. Yeah. Uh, and that's they, the thing is that they want to hold them. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's great. I mean, if, you, if you're, you know, like if you're short on shelf space, a disc is this thin. Just remove the uh, remove what? the art. Oh God, remove, no. no! No, 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 no! Take the art out of the Blu-ray box if you need to. Yeah. If you need the space, and uh, keep the disc. If you know, if you're really tight on space, you're living in an apartment or whatever. Now, you're you, you're like keep it, but we know that just below the camera there, there are boxes. <laughs> yeah, <don't, laughs> Blu-ray cases. Don't uh, be so me. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a future episode of Storage Wars. Now, I say I say do that, but I don't do that. I keep every every uh, Blu-ray in the disc because I like how they look and it keeps them orderly. If I take them out, then I'm like, ah, they're slipping all over. But uh, uh, Dan, Dan knows that I love finding obscure formats of films and gifting them to people because uh, they. You know, like uh, we found a, um, a shelf full of HD DVDs of Alexander. And when people just see that that red HD DVD of that fine film and they say, what am I supposed to do with this? That's what I live for. <laughs> Wait, what's HD DVD? You mean 4K? <laughs> oh, no, Dan. No. Oh, no. I, 
I there was I remember there was two three years when there it was between uh, the Blu-ray Blu versus and HD DVD. And we would yeah. have to we would literally have to do separate menus. We'd have to do separate masks. I mean, like it was a pain to do that, and nobody was like, "Well, we don't know which one's going to win." They did, <laughs> and, uh, and it was harking back to VHS Betamax. So WB won because they got a billion dollars from Sony to to cut off. HD DVD, and that was on the. They were on the eighth floor at the time. That business unit, because right. uh, I made, and this is one of my most beautiful website designs, a website called RedToBlue.com for Warner Brothers, where you would exchange your HD DVD for a Blu-ray disc. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, it was a service. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> The the behind the scenes uh, mechanisms of uh, corporate, uh, you know, corporations and the money that's exchanged that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, no, you know, they, they, I remember that, like in leading up to that, the you know Blu-ray versus HD DVD. There was you know behind the scenes if you were following stuff in the forums and things, yeah, you know, there was a real effort to to get everyone to agree so we wouldn't have a one. format war. Everyone knew that that was not the good solution. And even with all this knowledge, we still had a format war. Yeah. Yep. Well, hey, we've been talking a little bit about oh. of the smaller, more obscure, you know, titles that you have interest in, Daniel, and stuff. And I was thinking that there are quite a few boutique labels now that are putting out a ton of product. And even though people are like, oh, what was me, the end of physical media? It's like, really? Um, okay. I mean, when it comes to, are you selling, you know, the millions of copies of the newest release? Maybe not, but that's in part to do with theatrical changes as well. Not just home entertainment changes. Uh, if you ask me, uh, because there's probably been a lot of movies that went straight to streaming that didn't do anywhere close to the numbers that it used to do in theatrical either. So there's a lot more to it than just you know, the physical media purchase, uh, the whole industry has changed, COVID's hit and theaters were shut down. Like there's a lot and we'll never be able to go back and untangle that, that web. Um, but in the now, there's a lot of stuff being released. What are your thoughts on that? There's an audience. And as long as there's an audience, someone is going to move in to fill that audience's needs. And if it's too small or the perception is that it's too small for the big players to do it. Then the boutiques are going to come in and thank God, because these catalogs are sitting there and if, and they know how to get it out and the work that they're doing, it's great. And as long, I mean, here's the thing is you've got someone like George ensuring that what gets mastered looks as good as it possibly can, which then, you know, the, the guys at Vinegar and the guys at Arrow and the guys at Shout, you know, who are licensing the material, A, they're getting access to better masters. And then when they're making them they're themselves, they have, there's a, everybody's raising each other's standards. And, you know, the stuff that like Arrow and Vinegar and Shout, all of these guys are doing, there's, there's really, really good stuff all in the pipeline that's all coming out, which is, you know, kind of surprising for a dead format. Right. Yeah. Like, um, what is your company's value add? Right. And so Warner Brothers, it was our catalog. And so the value add that we had is, you know, it was 
in some kind of format, we remaster it and release it. And if it didn't have any extras, the value was it looks better than before, right? But now that or, you or you never could get it, yeah, now or you, you never could never get, get it, it. Yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. So yes, but then if you license that master to somebody like a shop factory, what they're going to do, their value add is all of their extras that they can do because that's what they own. That's what they can do. And they can turn around and sell that to their audience who wants a curated experience. And then they can put that in front of people who like, you know, Dan and I might've been able to reach them. Right. But they have a a dedicated audience who wants all that material and that imprature. And it works. And there's a reciprocal relationship. Like when, you know, yeah. this stuff gets licensed out to a boutique label and the boutique label does a new like 4K scan. That 4K scan doesn't disappear. You know, it stays with the title and it enters the greater ecosystem. And suddenly moving ahead, people have access to a new form of digital preservation that has higher resolution. And, you know, as the technology changes, whatever it becomes, you know, there, there's a new format which gives it longer legs, which gets you into the next decade and the decade after that. And then, you know, yeah. 4K. I mean, eventually, eventually the televisions will be beyond what our human eyes can take in. And then we're going to have to wear special goggles. But that's that's for the Sonys and the Samsungs to handle. For yeah, that's 4K. You're just talking format yeah. distribution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but 4K has allowed a new level of mastering that uh, and, um, and a sales window, right? Like, even if from a 4K, you can get it, uh, even a better Blu-ray than before. And, you know, it, it, again, as Dan was saying, it's an ecosystem. Uh, a label that I like to follow is uh, AGFA, the American Genre Film Archive, which is a nonprofit. Uh, not only have they been taking, in, in working with like Alamo and other people, right, some of these labels like a shout, will maybe release it physically, but then Agfa will take that and distribute a 4K theatrically, right? So, so you can get a day and date theatrical release to to you know markets like in Texas or whatever that can coincide with your disc and or digital release. And also, they have uh, partnered with uh, some people who don't have. Uh, the ability to release a disc and partner together and release 4Ks. And then because they're a nonprofit, they've turned around and used that money that they've raised to go into forgotten libraries by forgotten or underserved filmmakers and start digitizing these very unknown, very on the edge, almost lost films, which only existed in whispers and releasing it. And that's an incredible maturation of, you know, because at first it was like, hey, a Danny Kay film is available, right? Like people kind of know who that is. But when you go out to an artist who made a film for regional drive-in theaters in Texas about like horror houses, and it was released in two theaters, and then the negative sat in someone's garage, right? And nobody saw it. Now you, you get distribution for that. Like that's in, that's such a huge jump and uh, just really fascinating. 
Well, I think the uh, observation I've made is that the quality of the Warner Archive releases is probably unmatched or unsurpassed by anybody. And out it's there. funny you should say that because when we started, oh. <laughs> all we heard was the opposite. Oh, and, really? Oh, you know, yeah. It, it the, took the, a the, long, long the, time. The most common thing we would hear and became something we would say at work because we heard it so much online was if we were putting something out and it was announced, then uh, online, you're going to say the, the word in the forums. It was, oh, my God, it's relegated to the archive. And and it was, you know, people, you know, were very upset that we were putting it out. And it was. And not you guys. Of, yeah. Oh, it's the main home entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Like, it needs a proper release. It was, you know, mm. we were the bad news bears and you guys were the Yankees. And it was like, why are they sending red dust to the bad news bears? But, you know, thanks to a lot of hard work. Of George and Terry and Tech all the labs, and all the labs, the eye. You like, know, uh, eventually the proof was in the pudding they cooked, and then everyone went, "Oh, these are actually really good." Right, right. But it took a long time to get there, both in terms of being able to deliver the product, but also the perception. The perception curve was much longer than the actual delivery. I had a director when we uh, were releasing like a, an out of print DVD, right? Like he, he had a release through HBO and we were re-releasing it because it had been out of print. For it like went out of print, years. which is, you know, one of the benefits of the way we did stuff is something that went out of print. We were able to bring it back into print so people could and, get it. And he said to me, well, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that it's coming back in print from you because you don't have any extras. And I looked at him and I go, wait, do you think like if we took the extras off the disc, that would actually be very expensive to do. We're just taking your disc and ripping it and re-releasing it like what you're, you know, we're, we're never we're not taking anything away. It's just back in print the way it was like that. But that's part of that perception process. Right. People just thought that somehow it's like a stripped down version. But mm-hmm. it it just that that doesn't it doesn't even make economic sense. But if you're not in the business, you don't know how these things are made or or how they're manufactured or burned or not familiar with ISO files, you could see how emotionally people would react to it. It was an understandable reaction, but it just um, Dan and I and uh, you know would forget that people weren't living this literally every day of their lives. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I think the big thing that I take away from, from seeing all these other companies, even if the quality of their master is not the same level of Warner Archive, is that I think if we go back to the dark ages of not offering films to people, you know what they're going to do? They're yep. going to pilot it. Oh, yeah. Right. And oh, yeah. Spent, the studio spent so much money fighting piracy, trying to get people to understand, please, these are valuable works of art. Please don't pirate them and show them in this low-res format and sell that. You're robbing us. It's illegal. And uh, piracy is no good for the business. If you hoard stuff, if you don't release it, if you, you know, whatever, people will rip it to get their own physical media copy. 
So it does no good for the industry or the fans uh, to do it. And, you know, time has proven that, like, the best way to combat piracy is to make the stuff available easily in a good quality format. People will choose not to pirate like that if you just make it able for them to access it. It's when you pull stuff away. It's when you hide it. It's when you bury it. It's when you don't put it out that they... Was that a print? Yeah. Yep. yep. And then suddenly there's there's weird additions on on eBay that you don't know where they came from, or people are going to Russian sites and getting their computers full of viruses. And I think that uh, the the streamers have not maybe been down that road quite the same. I know there's password sharing and other things they have to deal with, but if you see a show on Max or Netflix or something that's an original, and they never release it on physical media. And you really want it, they're not only are they losing out on potential revenue, but they're just setting up the basis for piracy in the future as right. well. So, Matt, you know, if you have an audience for a show, release it. Right. You, you, you can wait a year or two if you want, but eventually, please release it. Let yep. people own it. And people will wait for that and buy it, even if they have seen like a, a crappy quality floating around. I, the I think an example or, yeah. of that, an example of that is The Mandalorian, which is very yep. popular on Disney Plus. I love that show myself. It took a few years, yep. And part of it was for various reasons that they were holding back. But it's got some beautiful artwork. They're releasing it. It's 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 coming out if it's not already out by the time this is aired. And people are going to gobble that up. And people people want to own it. And you can still go back to Disney Plus and stream it if you want to tonight. And people are are noticing that this stuff actually still looks noticeably better. In its physical format, oh, as opposed my, to the streaming. By far, by far, when I put it on my 4K monitor, and it's a Blu-ray or a 4K, obviously, yep. yeah. I'm getting the best quality right there. And then the audio. I well, just, that's, that's the, like all of I mean, audio. this is a whole other two-long yeah. conversation. But oh, like yeah, so much yeah. of what people perceive visually is actually the audio system. Like Matt and I just saw the new um, Godzilla Minus One. Fantastic film. And we it saw it great. in IMAX, but you know, what really made that film great visually was the sound system. Right. right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We, we came out of it. I'm like, well, you don't have to see it in IMAX, but the sound, the was, sound was so a good. character, right? Yep. In IMAX. Yeah, right. And there's a critical moment in the film. This is not a spoiler because it's just about the soundtrack, but the soundtrack goes silent. Yeah. And right. it's so powerful and so noticeable because it's like you, all of a sudden you just kind of realize like I was co- and and you and you focus right on the screen right like and it's and um without such an amazing sound system it, it would still work but the impact in the theater because all the vibration right everything just stopped so good like yeah, that, that, that's that, what I want to package up and yeah in my and head. that's uh that just clicked in my brain we're coming up on oscar season and last year when they removed having during the live broadcast some of the categories like sound and i was you know along with the people who actually did the work but as just a fan i was like are you kidding me a huge part of the experience is the sound if you pull out sound editing and relegate them to something else people will not understand the importance of the sound editing the score all of this yeah. Uh, stuff that you don't see, but it's a part of the movie. Experience. I I am so 
not jealous of the people who put on the Academy Awards because that is one heck of a show to produce. Like, what do you show? What do you not show? And everybody's eyes are on it, right? right. Uh, but, but yes. And, you know, that and the musical numbers and stuff are part of the, sh- the, the live show, right? The, sh- the show itself is like about all the different parts of what goes into movies. It's yeah. The movie's day. And uh, yeah. you know what, Dan, I'm speaking about sound. On the studio tour, Dan and I, we did oh, the, the gravity. gravity. Yeah, yeah. so good. They, yeah. they, they, did they, had a, they had a similar thing at the Academy Museum where they, you, it was the opening sequence to um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as it was running, they layered in each layer of soundtrack. So, like, you, you heard, you know, the wild sound. And then and eventually at the end, they, you, you do in the score. And it was really great. It was also funny because I was like, oh, wait, that's Alfred Molina. But, <laughs> but yeah, when they're layering in the music and it was the same thing with Gravity on the studio tour where, like, you take everything away and one by one by one, you add each sound component. You realize what an important part of a film sound design and sound editing is. And you're in an environment designed for sound, right? You're also in the perfect place for it. And it uh, really hammers it in for anybody who is not a sound designer, how important it is. Well, we'll bring this back to the Warner Archive uh, as well with the sound, because we're talking about how great the picture is looking with these restorations. But uh, George hammers at home. And I do too, when I remember to do it, that oh, yeah. there's been a sound restoration. And yeah. at times I'm not as familiar with some of the really old movies, like twenties yeah. and thirties. And I'm listening to them and I'm, yeah, I might be a little critical because my sound system, uh, mm-hmm. will you can hear some of the static and things of that nature. But then you think this is over yeah. 90 years old. Are yeah. you kidding me? Of right. course the sound is going to be not <laughs> pristine, yeah. but the fact that you can actually understand the words these yep. were very early days of sound recording in yeah. many of these films. And so that restoration to make it just so you can put it in and actually understand and see and experience it is pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, and, and, and really, that's a reason to own because you get, hey, you can watch it on TCM. That's fine. But you're not going to get that if you have a surround sound at home like I do. Yep. You're not going to get that whole thing. Yep. Plus the night at the movies and all of the extras that, uh, that are on there. And, you know, the technology is such these days that you can go big and have your Atmos at home. But, you know, the sound bars are getting so good, you can get pretty close on a budget and still have that experience at home. That's me. Sound bar. <laughs> well, I have both. I have one room, you know, where I have a surround right. sound and then I've got a, a Sonos in the in the living room and it's great. It really yeah. is. So uh, even that. But, uh, yeah, and, and I understand things are expensive. And everybody has, you know, limited budgets. But the fact that you could own a movie from 1929 or 1932 and you paid $19 for it and it's been fully remastered and sound has uh, 30 minutes worth of extras. Are you kidding me? Right. I mean, I understand people want to wait for a sale. It'll drop three bucks. But please support the archive so they can do the good work of of getting it all done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And don't just wait for sales. Like. If six titles come out, kind of like you guys said, in a month, only three may interest you, and you may only have the money to buy two. Understandable, uh, you know, yeah. uh, then or you one. have to wait until, or one, 
And so you have to wait until you can afford to buy it. And then maybe by that time, maybe it will be on sale. But uh, if, if you could try to at least, you know, support the industry and what's being done by buying yeah. some at full price, that, that helps um, the work that Especially George is doing. when full price is 20 bucks. It's just like, come on, people. Uh, it's been the same full price for 30 years. Because you know it's twenty point. bucks now. You know? Everything. Yeah, yeah. It's I when you track back what what is twenty dollars is now unfortunately uh, just under an entree price at a restaurant. Yeah. You oh, know? good lord! Just going to fast food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know, Dan and I used to say like, "Oh, a download price should be around what somebody's paying for a cup of coffee." And since we said that, the price of coffee is higher than a download. Yeah. yeah. Like, it is not unusual for somebody to get a tall holiday drink at Starbucks for $7. Yep. A, a download to own is 5 right? Right. It's like yeah. cheaper than a holiday coffee. And that money, you know, goes, a lot of it goes to Amazon, but a lot of it goes to the studio. And sure. that's even that's like helpful. Like it's, it's just, um, you know, like there's all, there's all different ways. There's no one correct way to enjoy a film, but uh, there are the corrector ways. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, I, I have an opinion, but I, I really just am glad, especially with all the way that home entertainment has gone in the last 10, 15 years, that there's more stuff now out there than has ever been available for more before and more cheaply than ever. And that just means the love of film and TV, especially history can spread. And that is actually a a good point. Maybe more succinctly made is since everyone started talking about the death of physical media, more stuff has been released on physical media than had been released previously. And that's true. Yeah. I just Warner archive alone. When yep. Dan and I left, it was like 3,700 titles, I believe, were still in print, right? Like, that's, that's it. that is more than a lifetime of uh, material. Dan and I know because we watched over half of it for preparation for the podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that the more people say the death of physical media, the, the, it's almost like the bad press is better than no press kind of a thing. It keeps it in front of people. Part of it too, though, Dan, is that there's been very little coming out in theaters. Yeah. And so it's like, hmm, between these three choices in theaters, would I want to watch any of those uh, or what's on the streaming services? Or would I just rather watch a movie I know I love that I haven't seen in a year or two and I can pull it off my shelf? Yeah. Or, hey, it's now out on Blu-ray. I want to buy that and enjoy it. And you know, if you go to the movie theater here in LA, it's about $15 or more, or unless more. you go on a half price Tuesday or something and you're a member of one of these theaters or something yeah. like that. Ticket that price. That's and almost the same price. as buying the Blu-ray. Yeah, you know? it's, 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 it's almost there. Um, it won't be I, long before it will be, probably. I've been loving the streaming services because, believe it or not, there are a lot of classic films from other studios that I haven't seen. You know, or like uh, maybe what we'll say like A-list titles that you guys would release, but always were passing me by. And so I've been able to catch up on like all these movies 
that I have been putting off watching because, you know, we were watching so much stuff for work and it has been fantastic for me. I have enjoyed it. I've been going on disc sales. Like I, I like it's, it's very liberating as a customer to just follow my fancy and well, have you know. The, you know, for literally for years, Matt's had to hear me say like, eventually physical media becomes vinyl. Yeah. And the people that really love it are going to, and it's going to be vinyl. It's going to be thought of vinyl. And with the, the most recent round of death of physical media stories in the media, already there's been like two or three stories where somebody has said, well, maybe it's going to be like vinyl. And it's like, it kind of already is. There are VHS only stores here in LA. They have VHS well, screenings. Hasn't it been for the last few years that vinyl has outsold CDs when it comes to music? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which it's like, what? Uh, that's shocking. And yet it's not shocking. You know, the, the analog experience that people still uh, want to like, enjoy. And yet no one's running around saying, oh, don't put anything out on vinyl. They can listen to it on Spotify. They do both. You know, I have a daughter who's in Daniel. You have a, uh, a son or daughter. and Daughter. And, Daughter, yeah, and she wants to listen to the older music. And you know what was interesting is she's like, "Oh, I know that song. I know that song. Like it's from the seventies, eighties, nineties." I'm like, "How do you know that song?" She goes, "It's in one of my games on on Roblox." <laughs> I said, "They use." She goes, "Yeah." She goes, "When you're going around, I don't know which game it is." She's like, um, "They play snippets of these songs. They must have the rights. They pay royalties for it, obviously." I'm like, "So you know the song?" I'm like, "So let's play it." And We've enjoyed more music of, uh, you know, that she didn't grow up with that I, that I love um, because of that game, which is interesting. So in other words, anytime you put the lid on something, somebody else blows it off and, and uses that yeah. in some modern video game. Do you remember when, uh, when, uh, 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 was it rock? Was it? Yeah. The, rock uh, band. And the, rock the, band. You know yeah, how yeah. popular that was? And yeah. people were playing songs from the 60s. Yeah. Young, young kids. They didn't know the song until they played the game. And a whole <laughs> bunch of heavy metal bands found a second life because people exactly, rediscovered right. their yeah. music. I had, oddly, the reverse experience is that I was playing it and I learned all the music of 2006 of what is popular. Well, there's that too. And <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. And I know because... all the words because <laughs> I would do the singing, right? I, I yeah. love that game so much. But yeah. uh, kids are very good now at um, f following the rabbit hole, right? They they find right. something of interest and they've learned to research themselves very quickly. So if they encounter something in a video game or a, a show or even like a, a YouTube video or a Discord, they can ping pong their way through like stuff that would have taken us, you know, years to to accumulate and get an understanding of. And uh, that's that's very powerful, uh, and they're free to follow their fan, yeah. fan right? And their their special interest, and it can become theirs. They they and, have and, ownership of that. And through because of YouTube, now you can see snippets from movies for free, not the whole yeah. movie, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you can see snippets. You can see some of the trailers, trailers, um, and then of course for music. My daughter, if she is interested in a song, she'll pull up the old music video. And some of them don't look that great. <laughs> they haven't aged well. But um, around Halloween, you know, 
you've got all of the thriller and all of the old, you know, videos for, for the horror movies and things and, and Ghostbusters. And it's fun. It's actually fun for me to watch with her. I think the point that I was trying to get to that is that that's at one age, as she gets a little bit older, she gets introduced to some of the older movies. And I, I'm not talking about 90 year old movies. I'm talking about pre 1990. Right. Yeah. Those movies, she's going to be in a, you know, She's going to be falling in love with some of those movies too. I mean, Home Alone, pre-1990, we watch every year. Yeah. You know, Christmas Vacation. There's still some because they're seasonal that we watch, Beetlejuice. And, you know. yeah. um, so it, it's it's a great way with the physical media to go back. And, and the streaming provides for that too, of course, uh, opportunities where they have it. Yeah. yeah so. It's a fine future. <laughs> Well, guys, this was a lot of fun. I have no idea how I'm going to promote this episode. <laughs> uh, Good luck. <laughs> we'll, we'll promote it. Uh, wait, wait. Speaking of promotion, things. Matt, earlier you mentioned you had a film you worked on on Amazon. What was that film called again? Yes, that is called Lunamancer. You can go to lunamancer.com to find out where it's playing. It's right now on uh, Amazon, and uh, it'll be on Google Play as soon as I get a file over to them and, uh, and what beyond. Do right after, right after we get off here, you're yeah. going to get that file over to them. was on my to-do list to follow I up know. on that. I have wait. nothing to promote but no, myself. No, you do. So look for me on LinkedIn. No, Dan. Dan and I were doing Archive Guys podcast. We stopped doing it when Dan and I took a project that is uh, still going on right now. It's been a little over a year of us working on a fast TV channel for Conan O'Brien. Dan and I made, well, uh, by the end of January, we will have made 340 half-hour clip programs of Conan O'Brien, 10-year period over Conan O'Brien's career, which is the number one channel still on Samsung TV+. Plus. It's been very interesting, but we haven't had the time to uh, continue doing the podcast. But Dan. That's what we're going to be doing when we're done. Are you excited, Dan? We're going back to podcasting. We're going back to podcasting. I didn't know that. All right. Yeah. Uh, it all right. Live, so much live better. Live on the extras. Yeah. Uh, just announced. Well, you know, hey, you can thank me later for putting the promotion two hours into the podcast. <laughs> when nobody is listening anymore. <laughs> we, we love to bury the lead. <laughs> we'll say skip to the end for Dan and I where we talk about what we're doing now. Uh, very, yeah, listen to the end for, very, for a somewhat special announcement. <laughs> Well, it's good to catch up with you guys. Uh, now, finally, people can stop emailing me or yeah. not emailing, uh, no, posting no. and saying, what happened to those guys? No, keep emailing Tim. The and then let's let's get George on and all three of us could talk about Warner Archive movies for 40 minutes, which would be great. I can't remember. And if you're still listening, uh, the person who first said to me, hey, I have a suggestion. Why don't you get uh, why don't you get Dan and Matt back on? And I'm like, well, uh, that's a great idea. Uh, but they have their own podcast and they're very busy. And then, you know, lo and behold, we run into each other the other day at that book signing and uh, yeah. find out that uh, you guys actually do have the time. And it was great fun to reconnect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turns out Dan and I are really approachable and very easy. Uh, you'd think we'd yes. be in demand. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it, there were we'll, a lot of strikes recently. I don't know if yeah. you're aware of that. Oh, is that we'll, why you couldn't you, you yeah. couldn't go on? Because yeah. uh, we're in support. We'll work for discs. <laughs> oh, God. 
It's just basically what you did before, right? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Nothing's changed. I got so many discs. (laughs) Well, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I I know I learned a few things and uh, had a few laughs, so that's what it's all about. We just want you to laugh. Right. (laughs) That's the goal. Dan's All right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Hi, this is Tim Millard, host of the Extras Podcast, and I wanted to let you know that we have a new private Facebook group for fans of the Warner Archive and Warner Brothers Catalog physical media releases. So if that interests you, you can find the link on our Facebook page or look for the link in the podcast show notes.